Welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. I am Carl Stevens, I'm the priest. And I am Daniel Bogard, the rabbi. And today we are looking at Exodus chapter 4, which the subtitle for this episode might be The Eternal Donkey, but we'll get to that in a few minutes. (laughs) I like that. Yeah, I feel like every episode should have some sort of absurd title from now on. That's yeah. okay. We'll try and make that a practice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, let's uh, dig in. So last uh, last we left Moses, um, we were where were we? We uh, were dealing with the looting of the Egyptians. This commandment to have the Jews take. Uh, loot from the Egyptians as they flee. Uh, And so we find Moses talking to God in verse 1. Right. So although there's a chapter break, there's really no scene break. We are are still at the burning bush. Moses is still standing there barefoot. The bush is still not being consumed. All that is still going on. Yes. And interestingly, uh, in the way that the Torah is read in a synagogue... Uh, uh, there are seven divisions of each section that is read. Uh, so the first six chapters of Exodus are considered to be the first section. So we read that all on one Shabbat morning, one Saturday morning. Uh, but this whole section, most of chapter three and most of chapter four is all one reading. Uh, so there, to say it differently, there's a very different chapter division within yeah. the Jewish world here. Which makes more sense really in terms of the story. Uh, so let's dig into this story. Uh, reading uh, uh, at verse 1 of chapter 4. And Moses answered and said, But look, they will not believe me, nor will they heed my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. So that that seems reasonable right there, right? I mean, that would be my first question to someone who came and said that they had a message from God. Yes, very reasonable. Shall I go on? Please. Okay. And the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. And he, being the Lord, said, fling it to the ground. And he, being Moses, flung it to the ground, and it became a snake, and Moses fled from it. And the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and grasp its tail. And he reached out his hand and held it, and it became a staff in his grip. So that they will believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So... I'll tell you what stands out to me here is just how human Moses is here. I feel like as we go on in the story, Moses becomes less and less relatable. I mean, he's always, always a human being. He's never perfect. But this is such a human reaction, right? Something miraculous and scary happens and Moses recoils. Um Right. He doesn't know how to deal with it. And there is a a recurring motif of snakes and miracles, which I I really don't know what to make of. I mean, in in a few chapters, this will be the first gambit in Moses' battle against Pharaoh's magicians, right? And then is it in Numbers where there's that very odd story about snakes biting the Israelites in the wilderness and then setting up a snake on a pole? And somehow looking at the snake on a pole cures people of uh, the poison of snake bite. Yeah, gosh, I forgot all about that. Um, I wonder what the deal is with snakes here. 
Yeah. Uh, universally scared of snakes, human beings. That's maybe what this is, yeah. Right, yeah. and um, there's a – isn't there a midrash here about the snake and uh, the – and and the staff. Yes. Okay. This is a uh, uh, somewhat crazy midrash here. Uh, that uh, let me find it. So it's from Rashi. God is indicating to Moses that he acted wrongly in saying that the people of Israel will not believe. The snake is an allusion to the primordial serpent who is punished for his evil talk. Um, and it goes on uh, to leprosy and slander, but I want to hold that thought for a minute. Uh, but isn't it curious? Like Moses really in that Midrash is a being identified with the snake. Like why does his staff become a snake? Because he is engaging in evil talk by assuming uh, that the people will not listen. Huh, huh, huh. Um, yeah, and actually, so we're we're about to get this image of – Leprosy. Well, maybe we should, in fact, go ahead and read it, and then we'll return to this. And the Lord said further to him, Bring, pray, your hand into your bosom. And he put his hand back into his bosom and brought it out, and look, his hand was blanched like snow. And the Lord said, Put your hand back into your bosom. And he put his hand back into his bosom and brought it out, and look, it became back like his own flesh. And so, should they not believe you, and should they not heed the voice of the first sign, they will believe the voice of of the second sign. So I, I have to uh, point out a difference in translation here uh, because mine translates this as his hand was encrusted with snowy scales, which sounds much grosser than, um, yeah. Than simply being bleached as white as snow. Yes. Uh, so actually our Midrash from before uh, continues uh, that the snake is an allusion to the primordial serpent who was punished for his evil talk. And leprosy is the punishment for lishon hara, for spreading malicious gossip. Uh, and this becomes true universally in the rabbinic imagination that any time that leprosy shows up, it is as a punishment uh, for spreading malicious gossip. Now, it's actually only malicious gossip that is true. Uh, if it is a lie, huh. it's a different kind of category. Wow, uh, really? Yeah, so for, spre oh. for spreading uh, things that make someone else look bad. Okay, uh, so here's what is interesting about that. Um, Rashi first was saying that Moses acted wrongly in saying that the people of Israel don't uh, believe. So is he spreading untrue or true malicious gossip? gossip by saying that um and so that okay yeah so for lashon hara i think it's less about the actual validity of the claim and more about the intention of the speaker if the speaker believes this to be a true fact and he or she is saying it and it has the potential of making someone look bad um, and again, the, the kavanah, the intentionality is important here. It has to be an intentionality of gossiping, right? If you're uh, spreading something terrible about someone so that someone else stays safe, that's a whole different uh, um, idea. Or, you know, leaving a bad review on Yelp for a bad restaurant or something um, right. is a whole different idea here. Uh, huh. But so Miriam, when she gets sick, we're told it's because of Lashon Hara. Okay. Uh, and all of the signs of leprosy that show up in the book of Leviticus are supposed to be for this concept of Lashon Hara. 
and here too, Moses is punished for it, according to the rabbinic idea. Okay, so when I first read this midrash, I I thought, okay, leprosy as a punishment for slander makes sense, right? Because what does slander do? Slander breaks apart a community. It's damaging to community, and leprosy is a disease which automatically separates you from community. So it's as if it is an enacting in physicality of the of the social wrong that you've done. You have hurt community, and therefore you are exiled from it. Um, however, from what you were just saying, it seems that there are all sorts of nuances to this question of living in community of, of gossip. Um, you know, there might be moments in community where saying something that protects other people, you know, being like that guy over there is a pedophile, you know, that is that would be appropriate. That would be correct to do. So you know it's true. You're talking about somebody who isn't there, but at the same time it protects other people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at least for the rabbis, the focus is really on what is your intention when you say this? What uh-huh. is your kavanah? Okay. Okay. So now I'm just trying to figure this out in terms of, of – this is a sign for Moses, right? So, um, is God saying, look, I can separate you from or restore you to community at any moment. You know, this whole blanching of the skin, the whole scabrousness, you are either a leper or not a leper, depending on my will. And, and if Moses is to do this as a sign to the people, um, is God conveying something through that sign? Is he saying to the whole people of Israel, your health as community depends on me. Without me, you are as lepers to each other. With me, you are not. Hmm. I like that. I like that. Though I think you can actually read the rabbinic view in the reverse also. right? I mean, I think there is an argument that God is saying to Moses your health is up to you and your behavior. Huh. Uh, right. If you take the rabbinic view that this is about Lashon Hara, uh, if it's not about Lashon Hara, if it's not about malicious gossip and we, we remove that, um, then yeah, this seems to be a strong message to the people that God controls their health. Yeah. I wonder if it's possible for it to be both, but uh, you know, I'm just thinking out loud. I'm not sure that it is. Um, well, I suppose God controls the health of the community simply by establishing uh, these customs for, uh, I don't know how to say it. Is it Shalom Hara? Is that what you said? Lishon Hara. Lishon Hara. So God establishes that as a practice or a custom, um, and breaking with that practice or custom leads to punishment. Uh, so God has acted through the establishment of the practice. We can choose whether to engage that practice or not, but we should know that if if we choose wrongly, something will happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, shall we continue? And if they are not convinced by both of these signs and still do not heed you, which is interesting here, by the way, God doesn't know that they're going to be convinced or not convinced? Right. Uh <laughs> Take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And it, the water that you take from the Nile, will turn to blood on the dry ground. So we, we've got some uh, um, illusions to what are what is going to happen here. Yep. Um, 
and actually the rabbis view this, they say that the Nile is a god for the Egyptians. And so this is God first destroying their idol. Wow, that's good. Okay. Um, There's a, another interpretation of that, but I want to leave it for uh, for when we get to the plagues. So once again, listeners, stay tuned. <laughs> But Moses said to Adonai, please, Adonai, I have never been a man of words, either in times past or now, uh, that you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So, Carl, what, what traditions have you been raised with? What does this mean that Moses is slow of speech and slow of tongue? Well, I've always thought of it as being a reluctant prophet. Uh, and I think that's what I was taught, you know. There's always this question when we're called to do something about our own willingness to do it. And I think uh, here Moses is seen as as being a reluctant prophet in the same way that, say, Jonah is. Um, someone who is resisting as hard as they can the call that is being placed on them. Ah, so you see this as another, uh, if you'll forgive the word, sort of excuse that Moses is offering for why he's the wrong person. Well, that's that's what I was uh, taught. I don't know if I actually agree with it. <laughs> yeah. I, because I was always raised to understand that Moses stuttered. Right. That it's just simply true that he is a stutterer. Yeah. Um, so we, we've got a uh, really crazy midrash here. Uh, not sure what to make of it, but really uh, – uh, well, we'll just we'll just read this. Uh, and Carl, you and I were talking earlier, uh, so hopefully listeners have started to get a sense of what midrash is. Uh, but we have a new uh, definition uh, that midrash is rabbinic fan fiction. Uh, so, uh, uh, Carl, you want to give us an introduction to what fan fiction is for those who might not be familiar with it? Uh, sure, and I have a 14-year-old daughter, so I'm, I hear about fan fiction all of the time. I feel like maybe uh, we should have had her on to talk about fan fiction. Yeah, she yeah. would have done this better than me. But basically, uh, there are these different universes and stories and films. So, so the best example I can think of right now is the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which includes the Captain America movies and the Thor movies and the Iron Man movies and the Avengers movies. There are now up to, what, 15 or 16 of them. Um, and fans will look at these movies and think, what what extra story could I make out of this? Um, sometimes they're romantic. So, for instance, there is a, uh, a, a whole genre which is about the love affair between Captain America and uh, Bucky Barnes, his friend from youth. Um, and they just they go on and on and on. Uh, multiple stories written and shared generally on the Internet through... Um, Sites like Archive of Our Own and Wattpad. 
Uh, so that's that's the definition. And I will say that sometimes they break through. So, for instance, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey was started as a fan fiction of uh, the Twilight series, really? um, and that became its wow. own its own thing. So, wow. there there's a short definition of fan fiction, as I understand it. I, I think if you went back to uh, my computer when I was 14, you'd find some Star Trek fan fiction that I wrote on there too. I, this is my confession right here. Yeah, there's um, a lot of Harry Potter fan fiction. It's yep. everywhere. Yep. Uh, so anyways, a little bit of uh, rabbinic fan fiction here, some Midrash. Uh, and they're riffing on, I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. When Moses was a child in the royal palace, this Midrash tells us, Pharaoh would take him on his lap to kiss and hug him. I, I love this image, by the way, right, of this loving fatherly Pharaoh. Uh, and Moses used to take the crown of Pharaoh and place it upon his own head, right, like any little kid would. The magicians of Egypt sat there and said, we fear that this is the one of whom we prophesy that he will take away the kingdom from you. Some of them counseled to behead Moses, others to burn him. But Jethro was present among them. I love that Jethro is showing up here, right? That he's somehow in the court of uh, Pharaoh. And Jethro says to them, this boy has no understanding of what he's doing. However, if you're really unsure, test him by placing before him a gold vessel, and a live coal. If he stretches forth his hand for the gold, then he has understanding. Meaning that, you know, he understands what's happening here in terms yeah. of wanting the valuable things. And you can slay him. But if he reaches for the live coal, then he has no understanding, and there can be no sentence of death upon him. So they brought these things before baby Moses. And he was about to reach forth for the gold when the angel Gavriel came and thrust his hand so that instead he seized the coal. Moses, with his hand holding the coal, throws his hand into his mouth, coal and all, burning his tongue, with the result being that he became slow of speech and tongue. Yeah. So I don't know what to make of this, though. I, first of all, I think it's interesting that Moses reaches for the gold here. Like they set up this idea that if he reaches for the gold, he's power hungry and he reaches for the gold. Right. Uh, well, and there's this whole question, is a, is a magician's prophecy right? I mean, he's not going to replace Pharaoh. He's not really going to take away the kingdom from Pharaoh. Like at the end of Exodus, Pharaoh is still pharaoh diminished in power and you know missing a good portion of his populace but um the magicians are wrong essentially about what's going to happen yep yeah and then jethro who seems to be just a traveling magician himself at this point uh creates a schema for figuring out whether moses is power hungry or not and it would be easy to read that as him being friendly to Moses, but there's actually nothing there that says he is. Um, he's just creating this test to get at the truth, and we don't know whether he wants Moses to reach for the coal or not. Though it continues a theme, which is that in times of need, Jethro shows up. That is true. Right? That is it, true. It's actually a, a particularly powerful in the sense that there aren't a lot of other non-Jewish characters in the Torah who are so universally seen as heroes, 
Right. Okay, so Jethro, let's let's take it then that he is being heroic here and trying to protect Moses, and the angel is trying to protect Moses, but in a sense, they're trying to protect Moses from himself. And I can kind of now see it in light of, of the Exodus passage itself, um, because what Moses is doing in arguing with God is, frankly, probably detrimental to himself in a way, right? Like you don't argue with God when God is appearing out of a bush that is burning and not being consumed, one would think. Uh, and I think there are other moments that will, that are to come where we can see Moses being somewhat destructive to himself or his own mission, struggling with his mission at any rate. So let's keep reading this section, but I will simply say that the, the, the rabbinic idea, this comes from Rashi now, is that all these uh, protests that we're going to hear from Moses about why he shouldn't be uh, the messenger of God, uh, in the rabbinic imagination, we are only getting uh, the highlights here, that actually this goes on for a full week of Moses offering excuse after excuse after excuse uh, with rega- God rejecting them all. Yeah, okay, and I, I want to also just touch on uh, this other midrash, the Dershot Haran. Uh, Moses was afflicted with a speech impediment so that no one should think that his success in transmitting the Torah to the world was due to his or- oratorical skills. Rather, it derived solely from the fact that the divine presence spoke from his throat. And and the reason I want to touch on that is because in our last episode, we spent some time talking about the leadership qualities of Moses. Mm. And humility was an important one. Um, here, of course, it's not Moses' own humility. It is an affliction which leads to humility. But I, I just want to hold that up, that... Really, I feel this entire time that we're beside the the burning bush, there are two questions in play. One is, what is the nature of God? And the other is, what is the nature of human leadership? Mm. Mm-hmm. So should we roll on? Do you want to take it from here? Let's go. Uh, and Adonai said to him, and I'm switching the word Lord to Adonai, uh, the Hebrew here, just to sort of take it out of this... Uh, um, feudal context that we get, this feudal idea of a lord and kings and things like that, that that's not actually in the original text here. That's um, a later Good. Change. I'll do the same. I, I like that. Uh, and Adonai said to him, who gives man speech? Who makes him dumb or deaf, seeing or blind? He said, not I, Adonai. Now go, and I will be with you as you speak and will instruct you what to say. So there's that creation motif too, right? Adonai, Adonai creates, gives speech, and uh, if the tradition says that this argument goes on for a week, it's hard not to hear the echo of the creation story in that. Yeah, yeah. It's a new creation here. It is a new creation, and that I want to just tag that as a theme, particularly, particularly when we get to the plagues, um, because I've read some scholarship that talks about the plagues themselves is a kind of undoing of creation. Um, so those seven days of creation are, are very much in play here. Huh. I, and I, you know, I sort of like this read too, because you can, I think, take this whole, these early chapters of Exodus and think of them as the uh, tohu vavohu, the, the chaos and the void, the unformedness uh, yeah. that the world starts with as we, 
move towards the peak of Sinai. That is, that's great. Right. So do we have a retelling here in, in a kind of slantwise way of the, of the Genesis narrative? Yeah. Nice. Um, so Moses responds, please, Adonai, make someone else your agent. Adonai became angry with Moses and God said, there's your brother, Aaron, the Levite. He, I know, speaks readily. Even now he is setting out to meet you and will be happy to see you. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. I will be with you and with him as you speak and tell both of you what to do. And he shall speak for you to the people. Thus, he shall serve as your spokesman with you playing the role of God to him. Whoa. Yeah, right. Uh, And take with you this rod with which you shall perform the signs. Uh, Okay, there's a lot here. There's there a lot. Is. So the, the, the woe reaction that I had was that my translation says you will be for him like a God, um, which it is surprising within itself, but is also in some ways milder, perhaps, than uh, you will play the role of God for him. Uh, because you could say, you know, you will be like a God. All right, we're, we're just playing around for a minute with... Uh, um, with a pantheistic system. Uh, but no, if you're playing the role of God of Adonai, suddenly we're dealing with ultimacy in a way. Maybe we weren't in my translation. Uh, yeah. I'll tell you, I, I'm looking at the Hebrew here. It's, uh, uh, and you will be to him. Uh, like a God towards a God. Uh, not a God, really, I should say, towards God or like okay. like God. Um, I, I, playing the role of, that seems reasonable. Um, but yeah, the, the Hebrew is straightforward here. Patatielo lelohim. Elohim being the word for God. Wow, that's that's really amazing. And uh, surprising that Alter, Robert Alter, who, whose translation I'm using, uh, doesn't go there. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder why. I wonder why. <laughs> Um, okay, but you, I know, wanted to talk a little bit about Aaron at this point. So there is this question. Uh, there is your brother Aaron the Levite. Why would God mention that Aaron is a Levite here? Yeah, because if Moses is a Levite, Aaron is a, mid- uh, a Levite, right? Yeah, they're right. Brothers. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. By definition, they're both uh, Levites. They're both Levi'im. Uh, so... Why mention it here? We know that later on Moses is, uh, excuse me, we know that later on Aaron becomes the high priest. Uh And there's a lot of questioning within the early rabbis. Why is Moses not the high priest? Right? Logically seems that Moses should be the priest. He's Jethro's son-in-law. He is, uh, the main guy. Uh, and so in the rabbinic imagination, this is why. Adonai became angry with Moses and took away the priesthood from him, gave it to Aaron instead. In the Jewish tradition, this actually becomes the paradigm for leadership. So if you go back to when Jews had kings, you know, for instance, if we go back to the, um, you know, around the year zero, 
you would have a king and you would have a high priest and they both had status and they both had power independent of each other. Uh, right. It's sort of the uh, um, uh, uh, branches of government of the ancient uh, theocratic world. Uh, but interestingly enough, this also becomes part of the imagination of some streams of Judaism for the idea of a Messiah. So if we go back to, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, for instance, the community at Qumran, we discovered that at least some of them seem to have believed that there would be a Mashiach ben David, a Messiah descendant of David, who was wow. the spiritual Messiah. And then there would be a Mashiach ben Yosef, Messiah who is a descendant of Joseph, who would be the kingly Messiah. Whoa. Totally different concepts, totally different people. Um, oh, excuse me, switch that though. Joseph is the spiritual one and David, obviously. That makes sense. One. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yep. but, right? And so we get that model from this. And you still occasionally will find Jews who will refer- reference Mashiach ben Yosef, uh, Messiah descendant of Joseph, as a separate concept from Mashiach ben David. Yeah, so, but in that reading, then, wouldn't Moses become the p- political leader and Aaron is a religious leader? Absolutely. Um, but I guess my challenge with that, well, let me think through, because Moses does judge the tribes when they're in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Um, Moses does bring down the law, so he does things that a political leader would do. And Aaron handles uh, the cultic responsibilities. And Aaron handles the cultic responsibilities. So it does follow. Mm-hmm. Moses, however, I think has a lot more direct contact with the divine then we wouldn't, well, maybe I'm just thinking through the American context. So, and that's the problem. We're not talking here about a strict separation of church and state. We're saying, uh, in that time, and even in the model of King David, political leaders had a lot of direct contact with the divine. It's just what they did with that contact was different. They used it politically while religious people, or the religious leaders used it cultically. Yeah, and if we go back, you know, to some of these other books, if you look at the Book of Kings, it's really clear that the priesthood has independent power from the king. Um, right? I'm thinking of 2 Kings 22, where we have this whole story of uh, King Josiah's court uh, having to negotiate with the priesthood. Uh, so I want to bring another midrash here. Uh, okay. And I'm not sure what to do uh, with this one other than it's more uh, good fan fiction here. Uh, okay. And that is about this staff that Moses has. Yeah. Uh, so there is this uh, tradition that says that the staff was created at the twilight of the sixth day of creation, right at the very end of creation. Uh and was given to Adam at the Garden of Eden. Adam gave it to Enoch, who gave it to Noah, who gave it to Abraham. Abraham passed it to his son Isaac, who gave it to Jacob. Jacob brought it with him to Egypt, where he gave it to Joseph. When Joseph died, his house was looted, and the staff ended up in Pharaoh's palace. Jethro, who was one of Pharaoh's soothsayers, so Jethro shows up here again, saw the staff with the mysterious markings on it and coveted it. He took it and planted it in the garden of his home, and no man was able to come close to it. When Moses came to Jethro's house, he entered the garden, saw the staff, read the markings on it, reached out his hand, and plucked it from the ground. This is a sword in the stone uh, moment. When Jethro saw this, he proclaimed, 
this man shall redeem the people of Israel from Egypt. And he gave him his daughter Zipporah as a wife. Okay, so that is from, I'm going to mispronounce this, but Perkai de Rabbi Eliezer. That was very Uh, impressive, i got to say right there. It's a collection of Midrash. (laughs) Okay, I'm getting better. Uh, when does that date from? So, actually, Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer dates back uh, to the 8th century. Uh, okay. And it seems like there are some uh, uh, copies owned by private owners from then that we still have. Uh, or that we okay. have mentions of. So, it's interesting to think that this story then probably predates the Arthurian legends. Um, I'm not sure when the Sword of the Stone shows up in Arthurian Legends, yeah. but it's way later than that, I'm pretty sure. So um, once again, it's another of those moments where we can ask, like, how much is Judaism and Christianity, how much are they talking to each other throughout the last 2,000 years? And where where do the influences lie? Yeah. 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 I wonder if there is a direct influence there, or maybe, uh, you know, you can imagine a world where uh, there is a trope a cultural trope of something stuck in a, the ground that only the chosen one can pull out. Right. Um, a meme, if you will. Exactly. Yes. That's exactly. It. Well, we are just pandering to the kids yes. with this podcast today. Yes, we are. <laughs> okay. Well, let's move on to, uh, to the very, very exciting things that happen after this. Um, yeah. And we should see how much more uh, millennial uh, jargon we can work in here. Yeah. Yeah, that would be great. Uh, So I believe we're at verse 18. 18. You want to read? Yep. And Moses went and returned to Jether, his father-in-law, and he said to him, Let me go, pray, and return to my brothers who are in Egypt, that I may see whether they still live. And Jethro said, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go, return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. And Moses took his wife and his sons and mounted them on the donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt, and Moses took God's staff in his hand. And and Adonai said to Moses, When you set out to return to Egypt, see all the portents that I have put in your hand, and do them before Pharaoh. Okay, stop here, because uh, suddenly we have a time loop going on. We're told he returns to Egypt, and then in the very next verse, God is saying, Oh, and when you return to Egypt, do this. Yes. Yes. So we've got a a break of some sort in the chronology here. So this becomes uh, really a uh, principle within Jewish exegesis of the Torah uh, that there is no before or after in the Torah. That the whole idea that this is in a chronological order is there because we want stories and we work best through stories, but in fact, there is no order. The truth here is not the truth of history or of time, but a deeper kind of truth. Uh, right. And in part, I think that's because we're dealing with eternal things. Like, what is eternity? Eternity is the thing that is not temporality, you know? So as soon as our stories start to touch on the eternal, or our thoughts start to touch on the eternal, or maybe even our actions, or those moments of being when we are simply in tune with the eternal, uh, temporality goes away. Uh, and we can see and appreciate everything 
from a space outside of temporality so that all moments seem to be happening at once. So there, there's a tradition in Judaism that the entirety of the Torah is actually given bidiburachat, that uh, it's all given in one utterance by the divine. It is one sound. Yeah. Uh, but humans aren't capable of understanding truth in that sort of pure form. And so it becomes translated into these narrative stories. Um, but the essence of the truth within isn't about history. It's not about narrative. It's not about the order of things. Um, or at least not the chronological order of things. And oddly enough, some of these stories, um, are stories about donkeys. <laughs> yes. Now returning to our uh, title of our podcast this week. Yes. Um, so you want to read us that midrash? Sure. Moses returns to Egypt mount, mounted upon the donkey, the designated donkey. That is the donkey that Abraham settled for the binding of Isaac. And that is the one upon whom the King Messiah is destined to appear, as it is said, humble and riding a donkey. And this is from, again, from Pirkei Rabbi Eliezer, who is our um, sword in the stone fantasist, uh, who I am now deeply in love with. I think I need a, a uh, Pirkei Rabbi Eliezer concert t-shirt yeah. to go with my... Uh... <laughs> okay, if you get those made, I want one too. Sure. Uh, okay, good Maybe deal. we should have a contest here. You know, the one who <laughs> sends in the best, I don't know, question for our podcast. You too will get a yeah. uh, your own Pirke de Revielles or concert t-shirt. Uh, yes, indeed. Yeah, that that um, 2006 show in Birmingham was just that was <laughs> yeah. Well, well the, the giant inflatable donkey on the stage was just madness. Mm -hmm. Uh, shades of Pink Floyd uh -huh. uh, animals tour. Uh -huh. <laughs> anyway, we um, may have left all of our listeners behind, but we're enjoying ourselves here. So you know, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but I love the fact that there. So it is like this is the designated donkey, the one donkey that through eternity, through all these stories, runs as as a through line, and of course it runs as a, as a through line even into the Gospels. Because Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday, and and also the Holy Family flees to Egypt on a donkey. So so we get there are donkeys everywhere, and maybe it's the same donkey. Yeah. So maybe there aren't donkeys everywhere. Maybe it is just <laughs> one donkey. Um, and I have a memory. It's not in this midrash, but I I swear I have a memory that uh, there's a tradition that the donkey of Bilam is also the same donkey. And that one can talk. So that would be. I, Even this better. seems to be a special donkey. Right. <laughs> very, very special yeah, I mean, talk, talking is not the most impressive thing <laughs> this donkey does, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Being eternal and appearing throughout time, that is really more of the impressive thing. Yes. Um, so, and for you science fiction fans, this is kind of donkeyest TARDIS. Donkeyest TARDIS, <laughs> yes. Yes, we have, we have let our geek flag fly today. Without a doubt. Um, so I don't know what we can make of this beyond it just being really, really cool. Um, is there some deeper meaning we can explore in this eternal donkey? Uh, I am having trouble keeping a straight face even talking about this. <laughs> okay. um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I love it. I love these stories, though. 
Right. Well, I guess the meaning is is the one we already touched on, which is uh, we are dealing with the eternal here. In the eternal, temporality, tempora- sorry, temporality does not matter. And if it doesn't matter, then we can see eternity in all these things. You know, why not an eternal donkey? So b- backing up for a moment, going a little meta on all of this there, um, whether we're talking about an eternal talking donkey or we're talking about Moses who has signs and wonders. How do we, as 21st century postmoderns, deal with these sorts of miraculous things that feel unbelievable? Right? Do, do I have to believe that this really happened? I mean, my my brief answer is uh, you don't have to believe that it factually happened, but what it's trying to say about life, the universe, everything, God, is something that is really worthwhile giving your mental energy and, and the energy of your soul to, frankly. Um, so if we get past the kind of modernist, just the facts, ma'am, uh, standpoint... I think we'll all be much happier in in playing with these stories and feeling them out for for what they can mean in our lives. And I wonder if that's maybe part of the message of the donkey too. Then, uh, right, that it's or or our donkey midrash, I should say, uh, that we're not supposed to think of this as the same sort of rules and world that we exist in. I think that's right. And in an, in an odd way, it goes to that question of um, who are these people who are being led into the wilderness, right? The fact that we don't know whether they are separate people coming together or they are a, a coherent people from the beginning who are journeying together um, lets us off the hook in some ways. It says, you know what? What's important is how we think about this for our own time. It's not so important that we have a historically accurate record. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So let us get on then to the weirdest story in the entire book of Exodus. I, so hold on. I I feel like we should create a running list of the stories that we call the weirdest story in the book of Exodus, because I feel like we are going (laughs) to have, we're only in chapter four here. Okay, um, but I I think if we do a t-shirt contest, we need a weird story contest too. And my prediction is this will win. Okay. Okay, we shall see. We shall see. Okay. Um, okay, I think we were in verse 21. Is that right? Yep. And Adonai said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that I perform before Pharaoh uh, – excuse me, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the marvels that I have put within your power. I, however, will stiffen his heart so that he will not let the people go. Uh, so there's some real questions of free will there, but let's hold that for uh, when we actually get to the plagues. Uh, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says Adonai, Israel is my firstborn son. What do we make of that? I have, I have no idea. Um, right, this is, the, this is the precious. Uh, you know, I think back to uh, Abraham with Isaac and Ishmael, uh, right? We have this sort of tragic moment 
where Abraham says, or God says, take your son, your only son, the one that you love. Right? That is true. But I want to hold up against that, the fact that in Genesis, this repeated thing happens again and again and again, which is, it is never the firstborn son who is the, the chosen one. It's always the second, right? So Jacob and Esau, Esau is born first. He is not who this story is about in any way. Uh, Joseph is not the firstborn son. He's number nine in the count of ten. So uh, maybe it's too much to say it's never, because Isaac obviously uh, differs from that. But very frequently, well, Isaac doesn't. If we hear about two, Ishmael's older than Isaac. Oh, oh you're right. Of course. Right. I mean, that's what's so tragic uh, about this is there is an older son. Yes, and I'm just discounting him because he's not Sarah's son. But I shouldn't. You're right. He is the firstborn son. Right, and even if you're gonna make the argument that okay, so Isaac counts more than Ishmael because he's born to the wife, which actually probably doesn't make sense according to the times. The really tragic piece is then God has to clarify the one you love. Right. Right? Man. Yeah, poor Ishmael. Poor Ishmael. Um, um, okay, so, but another question for the firstborn son. Maybe firstborn sons are not important to God, but they are clearly important to Pharaoh because what is the genocide that Pharaoh is is trying to practice on the people? He's killing off the sons, right? So all those firstborn sons are dying in the river, being drowned. Um, although I guess maybe all the sons are drowning in the river. Uh, but when the plagues come, when we hit number 10, who is it that the angel of death has it in for? Yeah. It is the firstborn sons. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are some heartbreaking commentaries on this verse from Jews throughout history who are seeing their own persecution in their own moments as fulfillment of this line. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. But in the, okay. So we need, sorry, I was going to say in the Hebrew here, uh, the word for firstborn, Bechor, uh, also means chosen, right? So there's this sense that the firstborn is by definition, the chosen one because he was born first, right? The, the, uh, the best comes first. I say that as a, you know, firstborn son here. Um, uh, but even when it's not the real firstborn, it has the status of the firstborn of the chosen one. Right. Right. Well, I am a second born son and I just have to say, I'm glad Genesis is on my side. <laughs> Man, I don't know whether um, I would have been okay with this podcast knowing that you're not a uh, first born son. <laughs> that I'm not chosen. Yeah. Um, let, okay. So let's put a pin in this question. So we have two important questions at play here that are going to become even more important when we get to the plagues. One is the hardening of, Har of Pharaoh's heart. Um, which will come up again, again and again and again. So let's wait on that one for future episodes. And then the other is firstborn sundom, and that will come up with the tenth, tenth plague. So let's move past yes, those. Yes, because we've got your, your nominee for Weirdest Story. Um, we do, and I'm excited to get to it. I've said to you, let my son go that he may worship me. Yet you refuse to let him go. Now I will slay your firstborn son. Okay, now all of a sudden we get this drop in to the text. At a night encampment on the way, Adonai encountered him and sought to kill him. 
sought to kill Moses. Him being Moses. Yeah. So just want to be very clear. God, who has just sent Moses on this mission of rescue, is now attempting to kill Moses. Yes. So Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin, touched his legs with it, saying, You are truly a bridegroom of blood to me. Okay, let's stop for a minute there, because uh, the Robert Alter translation, I think most other translations I've seen say that he touched his feet with his son's foreskin. And, um, of course, we know that feet is uh, uh, a metaphor, an analogy, whatever, for genitals in much of the Bible. So, it I don't know why it says, says legs. legs. Does it in the Hebrew? Yeah, it does? Uh, Liraglav. Uh, and it, it's towards his legs. And actually, there's a Rashi says that what this means is she threw it at his feet. Okay. That, that it's truly a towards his legs, not that it actually touched him. Okay. Okay. Well, that clears up one part of the weirdness. So uh, maybe I've just lost some points in this being the weirdest story. All right. Go on. And when God left him alone, then she added a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. All right. So, so freaky. you might, you might end up winning for weirdest story here. I think that's possible. Yeah. yeah just, I'm just saying bride, bridegroom of blood. What does that mean? Um, and then why is God trying to kill Moses to begin with? Yes. Um, I don't know what to make of this. I don't know what to make of this. The, the rabbis don't really address the question. To them, the real issue is why is it that Moses didn't circumcise his son before this? Uh-huh. They assume that Moses, being a good Jew, would circumcise his son on the eighth day. So there is sort of this imagined idea that what must have happened is it was the eighth day, it was time to circumcise his son. And God said to Moses, get going towards Egypt. And Moses has this decision. Do I stop and circumcise my son, in which case I'll have to wait for him to recover for a few days before we can move on? Or do I follow God's command to just go? And he follows God's command. He goes and he comes upon uh, this. Uh, So we're told that the angel who greets Moses here turned into a sort of serpent and swallowed him. Because we've also got this question of how is it that Sipora knows that this is the response that she should take, right? Right. I mean, right. Is she just very good at like circumcision on the spot? And is it her answer to everything? Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Um, the milk's gone bad. Better check all the children. Uh, right. It does seem sort of out of nowhere. So, in the rabbinic imagination, they say that there was uh, this angel of God who comes and uh, swallows Moses from his head to his thighs and then spits him out and swallows him again from his feet to his private parts. Zipporah therefore understood that it was because of the failure to perform the circumcision that this occurred. So first of all, I have no clue how she could have figured it out from that story. That does not get me any closer to understanding it. Um, but I still love this uh, fan fiction here. Yeah. Okay. And, and let me bring in uh, an actual listener question. So a listener wrote in and they had this, this to say, uh, one, Moses was probably circumcised himself since his mother kept him safely hidden from not for 90 days. Does that follow Daniel? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 
uh, Moses was born Hebrew but raised Egyptian, he would have little connection with the importance of circumcision. Chances are he never revealed to his wife family that he was a Hebrew. Now that's a curious question. Does Zipporah, who is not a Jew, uh, know? <laughs> you know? So that that's a question. Does Zipporah know about circumcision? How does she know? Uh, and married to a Midian woman, Moses would have had very little reason to circumcise his own sons. And suddenly God tries to kill Zipporah's husband because of a broken covenant. So I think the gist of this question is twofold. One, and this comes from Margaret Allen at St. John's in Worthington. Um, but the gist is, one, does Moses himself understand circumcision? And two, how on earth does Zipper and his wife understand circumcision? Yeah, yeah. So in Jewish tradition, actually, Moses is born circumcised. Whoa. Yeah, he's a handful of uh, people that they're – uh, are these midrashim that say they were born circumcised? The other ones being Adam, Seth, Noah, uh, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and Job. Wow. Uh, there's actually a longer version that also includes uh, Shem, Bilam, Samuel, David, Jeremiah, Zerubbabel. That's such a fun word to say. Um, yeah. So anyways, there is this tradition of sort of these special people, these maybe call them saints, uh, who are born already circumcised, who are born already, uh, uh, from the, the Jewish perspective, already uh, part of the covenantal community. Um, and so, so – go ahead. Uh, uh, Moses is walking around knowing, okay, I'm different from – other men, because my genitals look different. Uh, but maybe he's just assuming it's a birth defect. Okay. Okay. Just asking. Just um, <laughs> Basically, what, what I'm saying is, if you don't have a community around you to tell you what circumcision means, do you know what it means? So, I was just at a bris this week. Uh, bris is the ritual oh. circumcision that's done uh, for a, a dear friend and former professor of mine who just had uh, twins. God love him. Uh, and so they had the circumcision of the boy on the eighth day. And I am always struck at every bris that I go to at how weird of a tradition this is. I mean, it's, it's weird. It is tribal. I mean, I think it's the only word that you can use to describe it, really. It is it is tribal. And so in that sense, Moses was born, if we're to take this idea that he was born circumcised, he was born with a marking on him of what tribe he was a part of uh -huh. because he wasn't raised as a part of that tribe. Right. And so perhaps that's how he knew that he was a part of this tribe. And then we can read this story as Moses can't go and become a part. He, he can't go and become the leader of the Jews, right? Because remember, he's not the leader of the Jews yet. He is still a prince of Egypt. Yeah. He can't go and become a leader of the Jews until he makes it clear within his own family life what his tribal affiliation is. 
right? Is his yeah, family part really of Jethro? Is his yeah. family part of Egypt? Those would be the two logical tribes for him to be a part of at this point in his life. Right. Right. He's either a Midian or an Egyptian. And yet it is the Midian, his wife, who uh, claims the tribe of the Hebrews, you know, not just for Moses, but for her own son. So this is a moment where she's really saying, I'm, I'm going to make this decision for you, buddy. <laughs> you, know? you might be conflicted about your identity. I know that for us to survive, you need this one particular identity. So here we go. <laughs> That is crazy. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the other thing I had heard about it uh, having to do with the bridegroom of blood is that maybe this is uh, an atonement for Moses' killing of the slave driver, right? So he has – literally he has blood on his hands. Oh, okay. And so this is a moment when that blood uh, gets washed clean huh. through the blood of his son. Huh. Um, that too is freaky. I don't know if I want to get all that into it. I don't actually believe that that can be what it's about. It has these interesting overtones of Christian atonement theory, um, which it may be what's informing it, what it's, where it's coming from. You know, this idea that a father, a good and loving father will sacrifice his son to atone for sin. Like I said, I don't think it's actually in the narrative. I just throw it in there because I've read it. Um, interesting. Interesting. Wow. And that, so is that how a, a traditional Christian read of the binding of Isaac would be seen too? Oh yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. I mean, I would have to do a little further delving and diving into that. Um, of course the most famous and probably the best, uh, Christian read of the binding of Isaac is, uh, Soren Kierkegaard's fear and trembling. Um, which isn't really an atonement theory. So it's really about uh, taking the leap of faith and doing what is completely unreasonable um, and kind of the the glory, the magic, the wonder of the nonsensical. So huh. I see I come from uh, my, my Rebbe of a blessed memory is uh, Rabbi David Hartman. Uh, uh-huh. And so I come from a tradition where the binding of Isaac is Moses, excuse me, is Abraham's moral failure. It's the arguing at Sodom and Gomorrah that is his moral success story. Oh, that's beautiful. I love um, that. Rabbi David Hartman, if you want to read more about that, uh, um, I highly recommend his book, The God Who Hates Lies. It was his last book he wrote before he died. Um, but anyways, so Rashi, returning back to our text here. Uh, Rashi also, I think, is pretty confused by this story, uh, and in particular by what is this whole idea of a bridegroom of blood. And he says that the meaning here is that uh, you were a cause that my bridegroom would almost be murdered. You are to me like the slayer of my bridegroom, of Moses. Okay, I don't get it. Uh, yes. Uh, okay. So I'm returning back to the text here. What verse was this? Uh, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So Rashi's confused. Uh-huh. What is this idea? And so he's inserting a sort of new, a, a different layer here where he's saying that what she means by a bridegroom of blood is that God almost killed her husband uh-huh. because of the circumcision. Uh, and therefore her husband, her bridegroom, it has become to her like a bridegroom of blood. 
Ah, uh, it's a uh, stretch. I see. I'm not sure. I really. Yeah. Um, but the point being here so, that Rashi's really confused what's happening too. Right, right. So at this moment, Zephra is um, coming to terms with the mortality of her husband. Yes. Right? She's like, you almost died. Now I know you can die at any time. And we're about to go do this incredibly dangerous thing. Uh, oh, I really like that. Whoa. <laughs> so. All right. Well, let's finish this. Um, Adonai said to Aaron, go to meet Moses in the wilderness. So now God's talking to Aaron. We don't have that a lot where God talks directly to Aaron. Uh, go to meet Moses in the wilderness. He went and met him at the mountain of God and he kissed him. Is that Mount Sinai? Are we talking? Yes. Same mountain. Same mountain. Okay. Moses told Aaron about all the things that Adonai uh, committed to him and all the signs about which God had instructed him. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the Israelites. So this is the great moment. This is the moment where Moses becomes Moses. Aaron repeated all the words that Adonai had spoken to Moses and he performed the signs in the sight of the people and the people were convinced when they heard that Adonai had taken note of the Israelites and that God had seen their plight. They bowed low in homage. Okay. So let me quibble here. This seems more to be the moment when Aaron becomes Moses, right? I mean, he's the one who's speaking the words that God said to Moses and he's the one who's doing the signs. So, uh, this is Aaron's big moment and it's quite a way to introduce him into the narrative. And, and really it seems to be saying, um, these two people are at times interchangeable. Uh, and what I like about that is that a way it's a healing of that Genesis narrative where the younger brother supplants the older brother. Suddenly we have two brothers working, working together. in tandem. Yeah. And we're about to add another sibling too, right? We're going to get Miriam. We are. Um, yes. So actually there, there's some commentary that picks up on this and it, it asks the question, why is it that Moses has this speech impediment? And one of the interpretations is so that there is room for Aaron also. Cool. Uh, right. Making room for siblings rather than the familial dysfunction of Genesis. Well, what's so beautiful about that is this idea that it is our failings that make room for others and create community, both in the family and outside of it. Right. Like we, there, I, I'm so opposed to this idea that we all need to be perfect. And we talked about this last time, um, you know, with, with good leaders being able to acknowledge their imperfections and lead anyway. And here we have imperfections being the very thing that allows healing, restoration and community. I love it. I'm I love in. that. I'm in. Well, good. I think that's our podcast. All right. Now, hold on. What was what was our title this time? It was something about the miraculous donkey. We the eternal the eternal donkey. donkey. Keep your eyes peeled, dear listeners, for the eternal donkey in in your neighborhood. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah, we want to know about sightings of the yes. eternal donkey. Yes. Um, yeah, anyone who can post a picture of uh, someone riding the eternal donkey will get a free uh, Pierre K. de Rebbe Eliezer concert T-shirt sent to them. Yes. Um, uh, okay, so Lost in the Wilderness, 
A Priest and a Rabbi Explore Exodus is produced by Daniel Bogard, Carl Stevens, and the Eternal Donkey, <laughs> and is made possible by Christ Church Cathedral in the Diocese of Southern Ohio. Lost in the Wilderness uh, is part of Exodus, a DSO Big Read, which you can learn more about by going to adsobigread.org. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly from her album All Things Are Being Made New. Uh, you can find me at prayerbookart.com. Daniel, where do you want to send people to? Uh, like us on Facebook, DSO Big Read. Uh, type it into Facebook, you'll find us. Fantastic. All right, my, my dear friends, thank you for joining us today. Daniel, thank you for a great conversation. We will be back next week with more Havruta Bible study. Havruta and a uh, happy Jewish New Year to everyone. Year 5778.